Hello everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is The Bread of Life, a radio ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and The Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. To learn about our work around the world, go to traincpe.org, and to learn about our local ministry in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. And now to God's Word. Our message today is taken broadly from Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 5-2. Before continuing in Paul's message, we pause for a moment to note that Paul says that all that is recorded in God's Word, including what Paul has to say, is for the benefit of all believers. It has at least an implication and an application for us all, and it may have a direct command for us as well. Today, we'll take Paul's statement and consider what constitutes good preaching and good teaching in the contemporary church. If you go through the whole book of Romans and you begin scaling it up and actually just look from where we began in Romans chapter 1 and we've gone all the way now to the very first part of Romans chapter 5, you'll see that Paul is just building an argument. Piece by piece, bit by bit, layer by layer, he's laying down an argument. And the argument is that man cannot in any way approach God by his moralisms. He cannot approach God by his legalistic development and disciplines. He cannot approach God through following all the laws and all these things. They will all prove that he's a sinner. They all prove that he is still under God's judgment. He's facing God's wrath. The only way in which man can come before God and approach God and stand before a righteous God is to be justified, to receive that righteousness given to him, imputed, that it means God gives him something that he does not have himself, given to him by faith alone. Paul, in building this argument, then brings us, showing us first how exceedingly sinful we are, how completely ineffective all of our moral strategies and legalistic and religious strategies are, then confirming again how incredibly sinful we are, Paul then goes on to illustrate that only his way, the only way can be through faith alone, and then Paul illustrates this expression of faith as it was first, you might say, manifested and demonstrated in the life of Abraham. So he shows us how Abraham is this vessel through which God poured in this saving faith and poured out by his example the expression of saving faith to others. He is called the father of faith. What we've learned is that Abraham's faith began with a belief in God. Just started with a belief not in what God had promised, but in the promiser. And that God was a God who brought the dead to life. And God was a God who called things that did not exist and spoke them into existence. In fact, he could speak of those things as if they existed before we saw their existence, before they became present or manifested themselves in the world in which he lived. He calls things that he's planning in the future, things that he's decreed for the future, and he speaks about them as if they exist in the present. Because when God determines something, it's so, it is. And so that's the power of God. He believes in a God who raises to life that which is dead and speaks into existence that which doesn't exist. Based upon that confidence in who God is, he's able to believe God for great and wonderful things. And we saw last week, he believed God that God was going to produce out of him who was a 100 years old or therefore and had a barren wife and had for decades accumulated the ongoing witness that they were not going to have any children. God promises to Abraham that out of him, and out of his wife Sarah, was going to rise up a great nation that would be blessed of God and would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. 
And then God also gave him a vision that through his belief and trust and faith in God, God was going to raise up a constellation of spiritual sons and daughters that would gather around and accumulate in spiritual nations that would be born through faith. Nations of faith that would rise up from the faith of Abraham. And he believed God for that. Nations that would rise up and would receive themselves the very blessings and blessings in the same manner that God had promised to his natural children through his natural seed of Israel. And they would be blessed as well. So a nation to be blessed of him and to be a blessing and nations through his faithfulness and belief in God that would rise up one day, believing sons and daughters that as well would inherit that great blessing. And then finally, God also gave him a vision that moment in time of the one through which all of those blessings would be secured. One seed rising up from himself who would be the Messiah, who would be the one who would channel and bring and mediate all that blessing to the nation of Israel and to all the nations of the earth. He had a vision of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so the Lord Jesus says in the end of John chapter 8, speaking of that time and that vision and that promise that God made known to Abraham, the Lord Jesus says at the end of John chapter 8, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, saw it and was glad. He saw me. He saw me coming. He saw the promise God had given. The promise God gave to him at the moment that he promised you as his descendants. The moment that God promised the nations as his spiritual descendants. At that same time, he gave him a vision of me. The one through whom all these would rise up and receive their blessings and accomplish this great salvation and this great work of blessing would be accomplished for them. And in that faith, the Bible says it was imputed to Abraham righteousness in believing God for those things. And the word imputation implies that prior to that moment, no matter what Abraham had done and no matter what his responses had been, he was not righteous before God. It was imputed to him through his faith and his belief. And in the same way, we are being committed and Paul is committed to us that same kind of belief. That our belief and our faith and what God has promised through Jesus Christ is the means by which we take hold of the righteousness that he has for us. So we are justified and we have a right standing before God, not through the morality that we live, not through the ethics that we put together and we then perform, not through laws that we behave, not through religious conduct that we acquire and we follow in, but through faith in God and through faith through God and what God has promised through his son, Jesus Christ. We might also see that what Paul is doing in all of this and all that he's writing, and actually we can see this through all the writing of the book of Romans in this letter, is that Paul's primary goal seems to be to take those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and position them in a solid assurance. This is yours. This is what you've gained. This is what God has done for you. To those he's writing to, he wants to cement them through their belief and trust in Jesus Christ into an immovable, abounding assurance of their salvation. And in that assurance that they might realize the promise and the benefit of all that God wants to bring to them through that salvation. And so Paul has been highlighting all this and bringing all this through the life of Abraham. But after having given us the life of Abraham as this demonstration of faith, Paul says, now listen, God did not just speak that he was justified by faith for Abraham's benefit. That through his faith it was imputed to him righteousness for Abraham's benefit. It was stated and declared for you also. You who have trusted and believed Jesus Christ whom God has raised from the dead. 
because he died for your sins and he was raised from the dead for your justification. This was written for you also. And so what we ought to see here then is that all that Paul is writing up to this point in time, all that he's putting together, the arguments that he's formulating are directed to us. He's speaking to us. He's writing it for our benefit. The scripture that you have in your hand, this book that you're holding, is not just a historical treatise. It's not even there just so that you might be intellectually informed. It's written for you for a purpose. That you might be established in the complete and wonderful and solid assurance of salvation through Jesus Christ. That you might know Him. And in that salvation, that you might grow into Him. That's going to be our first little point here for today. The first point is this. That all proper instruction in God's Word is for the benefit of people. So that they may be saved. And so that having been saved, they may progress into that salvation, that they might be reconciled to God, and then having been reconciled to God and brought into relationship with Him, they may then through that relationship grow and expand in the growing experience of the benefits and blessings that are theirs through Jesus Christ, so that they might know the work that God has accomplished completely and finished in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for their sins, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for their life. They might live in that life and project themselves into all these things so that through their faith in Jesus Christ, they might stand before God right and right with Him. And in that standing, they might grow into Him and experience Him. And this is how God is glorified in our life. This is how God fulfills His purposes for us in our lives. We're saved for these reasons. He did it for our sakes. So... All theological debate, all biblical instruction, all preaching from pulpits must channel into this purpose to save those Christ came to save and to bless those Christ died to bless. To bring us into loving conformity into the image of Jesus Christ. If we don't have that as our purpose, We can come into our pulpits and we can write our doctrinal positions and we can argue our beliefs in such a way that all we're doing is inflating our egos or I'm speaking in order to inflate your egos. In other words, for example, when I come into the pulpit here and I preach, my goal is not to castigate those outside the walls of this church. It's not to kind of talk to you about how everybody else is in a wrong position and doesn't see the right view, but we got it here. It's not to turn the scripture and weaponize it to complain about what some other church is doing or someone else believes. That's not the purpose. It's not here to preach to the choir, you might say. I have a bit of a complaint against what I call rimshot preachers. You know, preachers who preach in such a way they should have a drummer behind them because they say things and the drummer should go, every time they sing, then everybody can clap. And you know, no, this is the time we're supposed to clap. This is the signal we're saying, yeah, of course, amen, amen for us. Everybody else is in the wrong position, but hey, we're in the right position. Amen, amen. Right? Got to be careful about those things. We got to be careful about bringing forth the word and bringing forth the truth in such a way that it allows us to bask in ourselves and not in Him. And it allows us to band together to gloat in our unique brand of thinking and our unique theology as opposed to what somebody else might think. That's not the purpose. The whole purpose of all good teaching and all instruction is that God might speak to our hearts, that God might penetrate into our own souls, that God would correct us, that God would lead us into growth, 
that God would refine us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that he always knew when he was preaching in the South, he was a preacher from England, and he always knew when he was called to preach in like Texas or in the southern United States. He knew when he was speaking and the Holy Spirit began to work in the different churches he was preaching in. He knew that the Holy Spirit was speaking when the people out in the congregation stopped saying amen to what he was saying. Every time he'd say something, he agreed with amen, amen. Actually, we had a man come and criticize me who was attending our church some years back because he attended our church for a year and he said amen. I said anything he agreed with and I'd never said any amens to what he had said. That's not what amen is for. Amen, you're right, preach it. Preach it to them, preach it to that person. Preach it, tell it to them. No, it's sila. Amen, God seal this to my own heart. Speak it to me. And then after a while, you don't shout it. You just say, oh God. What a glorious day is coming for the true believer when we shall live forever in the blazing sun of God's perfect righteousness, having been perfected in Him. Now, before we sign off from this broadcast, I want to remind you of a ministry website that we've developed called testyourtestimony.com. Our concern is that there are many in our churches that do not have a true born-again relationship with Jesus Christ through faith, and so they face the prospect of His rejection at the judgment seat on the last day. Our pity for these has made us develop a site where persons can apply the command of 2 Corinthians 13.5 to test themselves to see if they're in the faith, to see if Christ is dwelling in them by faith. So please go to that site, testyourtestimony.com, and prayerfully consider someone else you can share this with. For now, I look forward to our next time together partaking of the bread of life. Till then, may God bless you.